Welcome everyone to Embracing Crazy. I'm Toro Corin. Okay, well, today on the podcast, I'm in conversation with my dear friend and brother, Mitch Wallace. Mitch Wallace is a leader in the mental health space. Uh, in fact, he's one of the most recognizable faces in mental health in Australia. And we actually became friends a few years back when I was speaking at the SMBI program at Columbia, uh, which he was attending. He is a psychologist now, uh, amongst many other things. And I was speaking there, a very proud moment of mine. And afterwards, he came up to me and introduced himself. And to be honest, we've been brothers ever since. In fact, there's so many parallels between my story and Mitch's, uh, not just that we're Australian. Uh, there's many other beautiful parallels where we've become close. And so much of today's conversation is really about being able to see oneself in another, to be able to hear someone else's story and realize that we're not alone. Uh, almost four years ago in 2017, after having a profound breakdown in his life through through really struggling with his mental illness, Mitch Wallace decided to take a video camera and share his story uh, on Facebook and in social media. And uh, just like someone else had inspired him, which we'll talk about in this podcast, and after Mitch shared this video, uh, it reached over a million people in a week and started a global, global movement that he named Heart on My Sleeve. And Heart on My Sleeve has gone on to become an incredible company and mission in the world that uh, brings mental health programs into companies and also gives a platform for others through podcasts and other mediums to really share their story and one story at a time, inspire and destigmatize mental health, not just in Australia, but globally. Uh, Mitch Wallace is on a mission, and it's a shared mission of mine to not just destigmatize mental health and mental illness, but bring light to what is one of the largest issues facing all generations alive today. Uh, so like I said, Mitch and I met a few years back and uh, we've had such fun jamming and this has been such a privilege to have him be the first guest on Embracing Crazy. Just a little warning for some of you that there's some sensitive subjects that are spoken of in this episode that might be triggering and there is definitely some explicit language. Uh, Mitch and I talk about Mitch's remarkable mental health story and his journey from breakdown to breakthrough. Uh, we talk about OCD in depth, uh, about what it takes to walk through mental illness and into mental health. Uh, we talk a lot about the power of coping and uh, his early experience with repressing behaviors and trying to get on with his life and then finding a very different way forward as he came to an understanding of, of what's possible when we cope and, and embrace those things. Uh, and we talk a lot about seeing ourselves in other people's stories and really how one man named Harris uh, showed him that he was not alone. We talk about going toward pain uh, in order to heal. Uh, we also really talk about what it means to be uncomfortable and come back to the body or live a life from our heart, not our head. So without further ado, uh, I bring you Mitch Wallace. Mitch Wallace, welcome to Embracing Crazy. Brother man. Oh man. <laughs> what is up? What an honor to be here with you in this conversation. Uh, when I finally said, this is the time, this is the, the year, this is the moment to begin Embracing Crazy, you're the absolute first absolute first person I thought of having conversation with to hold a space for uh, and also just to be thank you man in this conversation in the world with you which I already felt so dearly you feel like a brother to me so it's an honor to have you here and can't wait for everyone to to hear from you here mate absolutely feel the same way um, I mean I'm sure you'll describe in the intro how we met but for for me when I saw you singing on stage, it was like 
looking into a mirror, but I have a shitter voice. <laughs> so, but everything else was like, holy fuck, I need to meet this dude. And you remember I came backstage straight away and I was like, hey, I know you don't know me. And this is like weirdos come up to people after the shows. I'm a weirdo. I need you to trust me. We need to hang out. <laughs> And thank God you trusted me because two weeks later I was staying at your place in Ohio and ever since we've been brothers. And, and we even ate pictures of Satan together, which <laughs> I will now have to explain that. Um, we really did, bro, which was super healing was, for me, just and, by the way. I think we've touched well, on that, I'll, but just to Exactly, and we'll put a trigger warning on the beginning that I said something like that. So mm. here's, here's the deal, though. You're, you're an amazing mental health advocate, a psychologist, um, but you've had such a wildly beautiful journey to arrive here at the amazing man that you are and you know i want to start at the beginning i want to start in your story because like you know yeah, more than maybe anyone else that i know how how much gold there is in the power of sharing how much gold there is in uh revisiting and allowing others to to witness you and the story that you walked um and like i will jam on today from wound to gift uh so mm. let's start at the beginning you know tell Tell us a bit about when you first discovered your crazy, if you will, discovered that you had some neuroses, you know, some worries, and uh, that maybe you're an extra sensitive person in this world. When was that? I remember the moment. I was uh, either seven or eight years old, and I was in the passenger seat of my mum's car outside Woolworths, which is the main shopping centre in Australia, as you know. And... Uh, I was tapping, repetitively tapping the dashboard of her car, my mum's car, blinking repetitively and saying the word God over and over and over. And she looked at me and said, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know, but I always feel upset and I think that I'm a bad person. And she said, fuck, (laughs) she probably didn't swear. (laughs) Um, She said, that's not good. And uh, so we went to the doctor a couple of, I think we originally went to a pediatrician, then to a GP, then to a psychologist. Um, but I, I remember the GP one um, and her saying, yeah, Mitch has obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. And I had no idea what that meant. All I heard was, you are crazy. Yeah. And I remember walking out the front and looking up at my mum, who as, you know, an incredibly strong woman, raised me pretty much as a single mom. She had me at 23, uh, was a professional horse riding instructor, busted into the corporate space on her own, into sales, one of the only women in IT, like absolute warrior to this day, my idol and the person I love most in this world. But I remember looking up at her and seeing a tear fall out of her eye. And obviously as an adult, I've now been able to pivot that story to she's really concerned about her son. But what I saw it as at the time was I'm hurting the only thing that I love. So I'm already in pain and my pain is now causing pain to the person that protects me. So this shit has got to stop. So it was almost that day I was like, I need to wear this metaphorical mask, not the one that we're used to during COVID, but the one that I thought would get me through life emotionally. And I have to hide these behaviors from the world, not just these behaviors, my identity from the world is obviously a monster. It must be left unseen. Mm. And so that's how the start of my journey um, began. Talk about, you know, talk about a, a beautiful, you know, fall from grace where not only were you experiencing, you know, these behaviors beginning, you know, this, this wanting to control and keep safe your world, but also that in that moment it became, it became wrong, right? It became something that you had to fix. You know, the part of you that was trying to fix everything suddenly was the thing that needed fixing, which, you know, talk about, I love to talk about behavioral cancer loops because to me in behavior, you know, when OCD is the perfect example of when a, a, a circuit becomes this closed loop where you can't actually escape it because what you're trying to fix, you're trying to fix the, the, the desire to fix in the first place. So as a young kid, it's yeah. so easy to become terrible and bad uh, when you're trying to get out of behavior, right? And the behavior grows. So I, man, I, could just, I wish I could go and just become your best friend right in that moment, you know, like 
Um, mm. But you know, we we each we each carry that. It's made you who you are. So, what what happened next? You know, what what happened in high school? Like, how did it how did it unfold? Yeah, man. So I think from there, I got I I noticed a lot of the behaviors I could almost like forcibly repress, which, as you know is incredibly difficult to do and without actually going about it the right way it can be somewhat harmful. Mm. And it's like uh, coming off meth, like if you're trying to stop your compulsions. Um, and so I'm slowly starting to withdraw, but they're still kind of lagging. Like I remember being 13 and being on the street with my mates playing outdoor cricket and like in between overs, I'd be like, like breathing in certain patterns and, you know, there's still a whole bunch of shit just like lying around and they'd be looking at me like, what the fuck is wrong with Mitch? And the shame and the embarrassment, you know, being a teenager is hard enough developmentally trying to fit in. But the, I was just like, oh my God, these people are going to think I'm an absolute freak. And I didn't even know why I was doing them. I was just getting played with intrusive thoughts of, of sexual nature mostly. Um, and, um, and I had no scope or frame of reference to make sense of any of it. So you just go, Oh, that, I guess that's who I am, a a demonic possessed, you know, whatever. And so, but despite that, even though that was true for the most part, my teenage years were incredibly normal. I mean, I, I would use privileged, for most of my life, um, in every sense of the word. Um, my mom met my stepdad around the age of, um, 10 and my dad's still in the picture. He's a great guy, but I live primarily with mom. Um, we moved into a beautiful suburb in Sydney, Australia and into this massive house. I started high school, um, at a good high school. I was doing well there. Um, so all my needs were being met. Um, around like 15, 16, I went through my rebellious stage and, um, fell in with the wrong crowd a little bit, but I still remember I was so bad at being rebellious, uh, with this guilty conscience that I think OCD has now gifted me with now that I know how to control it. But, you know, my friends started graffitiing and I remember I did like one tag on the side of a wall and I literally went home and I was like, I am the worst. Like I am so bad at this rebel thing. I'm just totally fucking out. Um, But yeah, I put a lot of pressure on myself academically heaps because I had very little self-worth and so I needed to prove. Um, I also found a lot of validation from girls and, you know, as, as I started to come into my adult years and I started to get attention from girls. I was like, Oh, what a great dopamine source. So, um, I think there was an insecurity around that massively. Um, but all in all playing sports, uh, top five in my high school for university entrance exams. Um, you know, went partying, worked at a bar straight after school, traveled around Europe, um, for, uh, in my uni yeah. break, got uh, started a Bachelor of Commerce degree at Sydney Uni. Um, uh, so incredibly textbook. Yeah. Um, and about a year, a year into my uni mm-hmm. degree, I saw this internship come up at Microsoft, and I, my mum, believe it or not, had worked there in her late twenties. And so this would have been 20 years later, as did my stepdad about five or 10 years earlier. So I thought, well, Microsoft's close to like a family to me. I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for this internship. Um, Went there. It was like the X Factor, one of the scariest days ever. Long story short, ended up landing this internship. So took a year off uni. Um, I was the youngest person in the company at the time and started in their consumer marketing team. And marketing was really my love because there's two sides of me. There's the hyper analytical and the hyper spiritual and creative. And I think for me, brand kind of had the business, but the um, spontaneous organic fun stuff too. Uh, And within three months, I remember at Microsoft, they were launching Windows Phone, uh, which was a whole new category. And 
my boss, who I'm still friends with, said, oh, we're, Mitch, we're going to put you on stage and you're going to do the demo <laughs> to the Australian media. And by this point, um, you know, I'm obviously freaking out because uh, that's a big deal. But I did it, went on stage, did it and came off stage and thought to myself, wow, this company is really, really invested in me and believes in me, uh, almost to a... Um, irresponsible degree. So I want to invest back just yeah. as much. So after I finished my internship there, um, then went back, finished the last part of my degree, came back to Microsoft as a graduate, then worked in the Australian subsidiary as a marketing manager and, and up and up the ranks, slaughtered myself um, and delivered, won a whole bunch of marketing awards and about four and a half, five years into my stint there, I would have been early to mid twenties. I saw this role come up in America for the um, for a global product manager role in the best team in Microsoft, which was Surface, uh, which was the newest, latest, shiniest gadget. Um, think about a company that's been selling software like Windows for two decades, and uh, they go make a decision. You know what? the people that have made us billions of dollars, like Dell, HP, Samsung, Sony, we're now going to compete against you. And the reason why that's relevant to the mental health story, why I'm kind of uh, mentioning yeah. that, is because I'm trying to paint the picture of what it's like for me. I, I got that role, flew over, landed in Seattle. I'm set up in this condo. I'm given um, social security. I'm on a super decent wow. salary. And... I am effectively responsible for a global product line. Everything from um, profit and loss, engineering, supply chain, brand, the Just whole to works. Your I, I, <laughs> yeah, I oversee it. And flying to Germany and getting the local team and like briefing them and saying, this is what we're doing, da, 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 then doing the same kind of all around the world. So the reason why that was so cool is because Microsoft couldn't afford to lose in a category that they just started competing against their own partners. So what that meant for me is best job ever, lots of budget, biggest company in the world in a category they can't fail in, very fun yeah. job. Um, so it wasn't uncommon for me to jump onto planes and go to Milan and host launch events uh, at Design Week with Franca Cesani and the Vogue and Condé Nast team. It wasn't uncommon to go to Munich and like hang out in Germany or fly to Australia business class and present at Fashion Week um, around the intersection of textiles and technology because we were making these computers out of fabric. Um, and... Uh, and Kind of after that role, I moved on to the creative audience lead, which meant drive adoption with famous people. Yep. So I would, you know, we would pack these products in gun cases because they were so sensitive to the stock price and fly them from Seattle to LA. And um, we would go to this like private meeting room and Hollywood directors and actors would walk in and, and me and the chief design officer from Microsoft would do these demos and in walks in uh robert downey jr and his bodyguard and we're in this like two by two <laughs> square meter room and i'm standing next to fucking iron man <laughs> as a 25 year old dude on the other side of the world you're kind of like holy yeah. shit i've made yeah. it this is yeah. it and i the reason why i just spent the last five or ten minutes painting that picture is because there was a very different parallel life yes. going on underneath the surface that entire time. I'm so glad you did paint it. And, you know, from this perspective and, you know, um, as someone who understands pressure as well, uh, that mental health and, uh, well, mental ill health, um, you know, and especially maybe OCD directly, you know, you, you just turn up everything, turn up the pressure dial, turn up the great things, turn up our responsibility, turn up how far we could fall, turn up how much is riding on us. And dare I say, turn up how great it is and how much of a dream has come true. Insert OCD and intrusive thoughts, behaviors, and urges right here to me. So like, take me right into the parallel world that was going on, you know, in the midst of that yeah. success, quote unquote. Absolutely. 
I'll go. I'll go as far as what I feel safe to do because ninety five percent of my story I'm so comfortable with, and and eventually I'll talk about hard on my sleeve. Like I, storytelling is my life's work now, but there's still a vault of 5% for me that I don't go toward because it's, it's where it needs gotcha. to be for the moment. Um, but in my teenage years, the, even though the compulsions would be present in weird ways, I would stop the physical nature, but then the obsessions ramped. And what I didn't know until a few years ago was that I was suffering from a sexual form of OCD that I would get intrusive thoughts around um, uh, inappropriately touching Got people. It. So for those people think that OCD is just like a cleaning thing or like a straightening up square lines. That's not it. It's a, it's a need to control your environment. And I describe it as an, um, a disease in the ability to tolerate uncertainty and Perfect. risk. Agreed. <laughs> so the most basic or common analogy would be if you have the specific strand of germ OCD, you wash your hands, you, you take your hands away from the basin. Now, in the background, people who don't experience obsessional thoughts, they don't even become consciously aware that your brain does a calculation and goes... I reckon I wash them for two to three seconds, probably pretty clean, going to dry my hands, da 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 da, da mm -hmm. right? For someone with OCD, it's like a mega torch gets shone on all the peripheries and the 0.000001% chance things that don't even register yeah. feel like they're 99% of a reality. So someone would stop washing their hands, look at them and go, but there's germs in the air and now the air molecules are on my hands. Yes. Is that true? Yes, to a 0 0.000 times a thousand to the one exactly. degree. But that tiny shred will feel like an absolute certainty. So it's the inability to say, oh, maybe. Yeah. It's the inability to say, I will tolerate that risk. I will stomach it. I will keep living my life as opposed to try and disprove it and try and make it at a 100% certainty or 0% yeah. risk. So for me, um, some stuff happened when I was younger that basically distorted my view of healthy sexual actions. And I started to believe that I was a monster because I would be getting natural thoughts as a young yeah. boy and I would mistake them as... Um, almost being possessed uh and that that was a function of being from a religious semi-religious upbringing yeah. that was a function of the way my dad handled a certain incident when i was younger not to his fault he was doing the best right. he could but the the way he responded when i was five years old to something that happened really affected yeah. me mixed with a very close friend at the time was sexually abused uh, by an older man. He was a young boy. That kind of came into this perfect storm of I'm a pedophile. That's what I believed prepubescent, yes. by the way, about nine years old. Um, this is before I even had the hormones to know what that was. Wow. So I would walk around school with my hands tucked underneath my armpits and I would have to stop pretty much every person that I walk past and say, hey, did I just brush up against you? Ugh. Hey, did I touch you? <laughs> and if they were like, I don't know, I'd be like, no, no, like I, I have to know. Did I just touch you? Was there any skin-to-skin -skin contact from our arms or whatever else? Wow. Um, so you can imagine how fucking distorted your sense of self or the world is at that age if that's, the, if that's taking up 90% of your computing huge, power. Huge, <laughs> um, so I never really, I definitely didn't understand it. I just got better at convincing myself, you know, in a permanent battle of, no, that's not who you are. Dude, you know who you are. And then the OCD would kick in and say, what do you mean? Right. That's of course who you exactly. are. Exactly. <laughs> so you're really in that battle um, between 
you know, and you said it so beautifully, you know, and so, I mean, I see so much of myself in you and we always do like, you know, you're either disproving the very thing, you know, you're trying, you're trying to disprove it. You're trying to, and you can't find absolution in, in you can't find certainty in these subjects. And, you know, for anyone out there that has considered themselves, you know, um, OCD, maybe they haven't, it has never been clinical enough, you know, consider it just, imagine it timesing by you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, um, where it's so loud, and you said it so beautifully, it's so loud, it's so deafening, right? It's so deafening mm. that it's like it's World War II and you're in the trenches in Gallipoli, and you need yeah. to f- solve if you your hands touched someone inappropriately on the playground, and you need them to verify it. Because if you don't verify it, the chemicals in your mind and body are going to ruin the rest of your day until you get that answer. And it's it's... It's so dizzying. It's so exhausting. It's like an absolute yeah. robbery. Um, how did you? It how is. did you? You know, how did you make it through? When did would you? Did you? Did they keep coming? Like, did the subjects keep flowing from nine all the way through, or did they kind of wax and wane for you? Yeah. So nine to thirteen, I was probably in the most acute period of that form of OCD. Then I got, I was like this outward shit, like the touching things, like tapping things and blinking, that's got to go because I'm not going to have any friends. Um, So I got very good at squashing those compulsions. The obsession started to increase and offshoot into different ways. Uh, General anxiety started to emerge. Um, Outwardly, I'm fine though. Like totally fine. Having a, you know, going out to parties, getting drunk, doing all that. Then I kind of, it kind of fell into the background at about 15, 16 until it reemerged and exploded that would send me off on a whole new chapter of suffering, right. um, which got brought on by a smoke of marijuana. And is this right in that 25 Robert Downey Jr. moment? Like, are you in, are you back in 25 here? No, this is 16. 16. Okay, cool. Yeah. So about 15, 16, things started to blend into the background. I started to to cope and thrive pretty well. And then at 16, I went to a certain park and my friends rolled this, um, this joint. And I was like, uh, to this day, I'm the only person I know that has never done a drug. I've never done coke, never done pills, never done MDMA, right. nothing. The only thing I've done is smoked weed um, like a couple of times and it was each time I had a really bad experience, mm. but the last time was what would change the course of my life wow. forever. Um, had a smoke of this joint, then it didn't really hit in. Everyone was laughing. So I decided to take a, a bong and I remember every, just everything I, I had a, a very, 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 very acute panic attack and thought I was going to die and lose my mind and all that stuff. And the next morning I kind of woke up and things just weren't the same. Everything felt off. Um, And that lasted for 10 years. Everything felt strange. Every, like, it's like the whole, it's like I woke up and the whole world was just painted with this, with this glue and nothing felt real. I didn't feel real. Nothing made sense. Um, I felt like a stranger to myself. I, w- I, I was experiencing what's called depersonalization and dissociation. Oh, my God. So I, I have to jump in with you here because we've never talked about this. And it just freaked I, f- I feel it's actually kind of freakish, our brotherhood. Um, 14 years old, Smashing Pumpkins concert at the Horton Pavilion in Sydney. Uh, I black out from a joint. My brother picks me up. The next day, and I've never told you this, Mitch, the next day, uh, and I didn't talk about this in the first episode. I skipped over this compulsion. And you just I just can't believe we have this in common. The next day I woke up and I felt this hangover from the weed. And I was young. I was I was 14. And, and so I just, you know, but then I started to obsess about it. And from that day for about two years, I felt like nothing was the same, that um, 
I could never go back to it feeling like reality. And I disassociated with from all my friends. I almost lost every friend. I had no idea it was OCD. And uh, I've never heard someone describe the experience. It was the most lonely, scary experience. And when you just said it felt like glue, it was like, I would say it felt like I was um, really like that the air had, it was almost kind of gray. Like everything was sort of shimmering. It looked like it was like no longer an HD TV. And for a couple of years until I could let go and say, Hey, maybe I'm not the same. I, I, my whole life kind of dissolved like my my friendship base like everyone was still my friends but i was not present i felt like i'd lost my reality and i just wanted to jump in man i've never heard anyone describe that and uh i just had to be brother in this moment with you holy crap that's amazing yeah, man so go on so, so i mean our story is is so similar it is kind of scary and i mean if you don't believe in the universe uh you're, you're crazy <laughs> <laughs> because this is all universe yeah, right man. now. So depersonalization, um, what happened? How did you, how did you crack that code? Like 10 years later, like after feeling that depersonalized, like how in, you know, my language, how'd well, you come home to it? How'd you come back? How did you take that risk? I mean, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, the solution set at the end. Yeah. I'll kind of just keep painting yeah, the picture of this parallel path. Um, but the, so that changed everything. And I just, I think I just finished, no, I was still in high school, um, held my shit together enough to get my exams done and then went overseas uh, for a tiny break before I started my internship at, in, in Microsoft. And I remember being in Thailand and like sitting out on this perfect picturesque beach with my girlfriend at the time and a bunch of friends and like putting my beer in the sand and looking out over this sunset and just thinking, I don't want to be alive anymore. And I was like, whoa, this is bad, man. Because my internal and external worlds are drifting. I'm in the most picturesque place possible. I could not be more anxious. Um, So that was a red flag. But the thing was, all like my outside world was going so well. I just, you know, I got my, the degree that I wanted, just landed this job. So I was just like, I don't know, like band-aid my way through yeah. it and I would just distract and do whatever I could. Um, and that was kind of working. And it all came crumbling down um, in my mid-20s, uh, probably about 25 in Seattle when I was working in the role there, which was a function of... Um, living away from home, being super busy at work and having huge responsibility for my age. But your mid-20s is just the time where stuff comes to the surface because um, ultimately you need to answer the question, who am I? And that becomes harder and harder to mute. And I think physically you start to level out and mature in your biology as well. Um, So my symptoms started to flare up a lot about a year into my stint in the States and at a rate that even I was unfamiliar with. And I was like, whoa, like this is, I was depersonalized as fuck. Mm-hmm. I, my OCD was ramped. My general anxiety was high. It was not good. So in a desperate lunge for safety, because I was petrified of going to professional help, because in my mind they'd already called me crazy once. I didn't want right. to hear it again because that would have just made sure. me worse. Um, so I was like, I'll solve it on my own. So I'm carrying three belief systems now by the time I'm 25 that are not healthy. One, I'm a bad person. Two, I'm a crazy person. And three, I have to do this all on my own. Yeah. So, um, and by the way, none of those three are true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's taken until now to be able to rewire them. Um, but the... So I I applied to do a master's degree in clinical psychology at Columbia University in New York. Um, Got got the tip of this degree from, again, the universe delivered me this person and said, if you want to do a non-traditional type of psychology degree that's focused on spirituality and mind-body and all that stuff, then Columbia is like the only university in America that's running this specific flavor. And I was like, that is me. I need to go fix myself. So threw my hat in the ring, got accepted, said to Microsoft, I have to take annual leave. They're like, what for? 
I'm like, oh, I'm going to New York for a, a bit. I'm starting a degree in psychology. They're like, uh, okay, it's your leave. <laughs> um, so I cashed in all my leave, booked this four-week intensive summer semester, flew over. And I remember walking to class on the first day, sitting down, just so happened, none, another universe moment. I sat down next to Malika Chopra, right. who's Deepak Chopra's yep. daughter, who ends up being one of my mentors after that moment moving forward and opened a bunch of doors. But in the first hour of class, I remember thinking to myself, this is what I was put on the earth to do without a doubt in my mind. I am here to heal and for the rest of my waking hours, help other people heal and cope and avoid going to where I've been. I have no idea what that's going to look like, but that is abundantly clear. I'm sure the how will present Mm -hmm. to me. And it did, but unfortunately, once we set a seed of intention and ask for what we want, need, deserve, um, connect with something higher than ourselves, a whole bunch of shit has to go before it enters. So I didn't know what I'd actually prayed for was a stripping of the layers and the layers fucking stripped. Not even to my consent. (laughs) Um, and had you asked me to go over again and do that, I don't know if yep. I could. Because shortly after that, I broke down completely. I mean, one million pieces. Yep. Uh, I, I ended up flying to Louisville, Kentucky, checking myself into an outpatient OCD clinic and staying there for a week where they did exposure and response prevention therapy that would put the final nail in the coffin where I would break beyond what I thought was the point of return. Um, Flew back to Seattle, called my mum. Basically, I'm not coming home. Um, And this is the point in my story where I have to kind of skim over the details of that because that is the eye of um, more inhumane pain than I ever thought was comparable in a living being. Got that, brother. Um, and then on my knees, looking up at the sky, asking, I'm like, here I am, your vessel. God, if you're out there, use me. But if you want to use me, this plane is going down. You have to pull this fucking thing up before it hits the oh. ground. And I'm getting close. <laughs> and I would say a miracle happened. Um, not in the sense of everything gets better, but in the sense of something shifts that fundamentally can't be taken away from you. And that was that a guy, I I stumbled across this video on YouTube of a guy called Harris, who I've never met or spoken to, and is the very catalyst for my life to reemerge. Thank you, Harris. Released a video. (laughs) Thank you, Harris. Harris. Yeah, love you, bro. (laughs) Thank you. Um, He decided to get a webcam and tell his story and upload it to YouTube. He was no one famous, had a couple thousand views. And here I am watching this thing. And for the first time in 20, let's call it 25 years at that time, I'm 30 now. I'm looking at myself in a mirror, watching someone put language to thoughts, feelings, sensations, and emotions, and making sense of something that I had never done and for the first time feeling what it was like to be understood. Mm. My greatest life's need was for someone to say, I get it. And I remember screaming in tears, but in relief, like a tiger that had been locked in a cage for forever, and someone finally just cracked the the door ajar um, he didn't get out of the cage straight away, but he's like, whoa, this thing opens. <laughs> Holy shit. There's a locking mechanism on this that actually is um, interactable. And this narrative that's been written in pen for forever with a predetermined plot line going one way, this has actually got some pencil in it right. now and an eraser and like, whoa, okay, this protagonist has editing capability in <laughs> Um, so I think what Harris did for me is not fix it, but provide the most powerful anti-inflammatory known to man. Mm. He did not necessarily mend the broken bone, 
But what he did do was remove all the surrounding uh, problems around the problem, which is the shame, the guilt, the isolation and the confusion, totally. which, which, uh, which kind of keeps you sick. Yes, indeed. And he was like, here, have this ibuprofen. And now for the first time ever, you're going to be able to get to the part that actually needs healing. Mm. So was his story the thing that cured me? And I'm, I'm fucking not cured. There's no such thing. But, um, regardless, was his story the thing that even got me to a point of management? No, but it was the catalyst that opened the door mm. to do the work that I needed to Absolutely. do. Absolutely, and, um, and catalyst is one of the most yeah. powerful, powerful things we, we all need, right? You know, each of us at our lowest breakdown points um, are praying for that catalyst. And, um, you know, what I know he definitely did was he, and, and you know, obviously the name of your, your new podcast, Understood, he, he held the space mm. for you to be seen, right? To be heard and to be, to actually be received and be like, hey, like, I got you. Like, you feel gotten when someone 100%. shares something that is so kindred to something you felt so isolated in right so you know what a catalyst and and that and we'll talk about that in a moment but we could be that for each other in every moment and you've been that for me um and as i as i you in the ways i have so far and so that's that's gold likewise bro likewise and at the start of the episode you spoke about you know the word story and 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 story to me is the most interesting thing, because in some ways you could argue that mental ill health or suffering is just an infection of narratives. Um, but we'll get to that later. I, I think that, I think there's kind of two steps to healing. The first is remove the inflammation. The second is repair the broken mm-hmm. bone. Um, in my experience, the best way to remove the inflammation, the swelling and the infection is a shared story or a shared human connection. And the reason why is that anti-inflammatory agent contains three ingredients that you can't find anywhere else. The first is feeling of understood, which just evaporates shame, guilt, loneliness, and confusion. Yes. And nothing will evaporate it faster and harder than someone saying, I understand. The second ingredient that a story has is belief. And belief is different to hope. Hope is a theoretical construct that you tell someone, you know, this is, this is possible. Who knows for you? Belief is, holy fuck, that is me. <laughs> I just needed one person to prove the model. Now I know that that can be me and will yes. be me. Belief is very different. And what Harris showed me is there's a guy my age with my identical story, sexual OCD as a kid, how to smoke a weed, got depersonalization. I mean like mirror fucking image. Imagine what it's like when he goes, and I'm thriving now. I'm like, all right, game fucking <laughs> on. I had no idea that this was even a reality. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's the second ingredient is belief. And again, you cannot find belief more potent in any other form than through a human being that has walked it and is now living with it well. The third ingredient in this anti-inflammatory known as a story um, is this concept of a blueprint. And a blueprint is essentially how have you coped and please share it with Mm. me. I think expert advice is great and, and um, getting professional help, et cetera, et cetera. But never, ever, ever underestimate sharing learnings from similar paths. Yeah. Because a story also contains a shitload of insight of trialed and tested mm. methods and options. And that's what keeps us moving forward is options. So yes, Harris's story allowed me to feel understood and made me believe, but he gave me practical and tactical things to implement that day that I had never heard in a textbook or therapy no. session ever. Yes. And I went, cool, coping tools, yes. lived experience, not just the pain, but also the, co- the coping. So together, those three ingredients form an anti-inflammatory that ends up creating the scaffolding that you need to then go and do the work and fix the broken That's bone. That's beautiful. And I'm writing a book at the moment around what are those, what is doing the work actually looks Fantastic. like. What's the working title? Um, and I t- um, 
there's a few, but it's essentially the seven foundations to coping, but that requires context because to me, to define good mental health, I say mental health is good coping. Um, It's not being free from any negative emotion. We all have anxiety and depression. It's not having a life with no problems. We all have problems. It's the way we respond to them. So it's good Good, good coping, good responding. And to me, there are seven core domains of building a coping repertoire. Yeah, please share them. I'd love, um, we'd, we'd love to hear them. Off the top of my head, I always miss one. Um, connection, coherence, chemistry, courage, calling, calm, and I forget. See, I knew I'd That's forget right. one. Well, six on the spot. You just did it. Like in our land, you, you dared to suck <laughs> and just and you went went with it. Um, I love your methodology on coping, brother. Um, you know, coping is, I feel like you're redefining that word, you know, in some ways, um, you know, coping can have many meanings in a way. And I, and I think at the core, and I think what's so beautiful about you taking on this word is that inherently, uh, when you have OCD, uh, and I, and I'm not, and I don't want to leave out other mental ill struggles uh, because you can very much experience this there. But when you have OCD, at the core of the of the breakdown, or at least one of the breakdowns in OCD, is that the the circuit gets closed because every person with OCD, when they're still really struggling, are trying to fix it. That at the core of what closes the what I call behavioral cancer loop is the desire to get rid of, fix. Um, to absolution and to walk away free and clear um, to go, ah, I decoded, I got it, I solved the puzzle, (laughs) it's now done, I'm ready to live my life free and clear, I'm finally just mentally healthy. Uh, And the word coping actually, uh, the word coping actually doesn't fit in with that absolution model. Coping is saying, hey, you know what? Um, Maybe this, this is something right here that uh, maybe if I form a new relationship to, and this is where we're brothers, you know, you're, you're taking on this, the topic of coping. Mm. As soon as you try uh, with all of your heart to reorient away from fixing and reorient toward coping or forming a new relationship to that discomfort, those thoughts, uh, something magical is possible, right? Something magical can occur. And, you know, I just, I'm so happy that you're taking on that, that space. And I love that you're, you're actually, you're, you're allowing me to form a new definition of the word coping too. Um, and I want to ask you, I'm listening to everything you're saying. If you're watching the video in, if, um, uh, on the audio, you wouldn't have seen, but I'm, I'm taking a note and I, I want everyone to know it's not cause I wasn't listening. It's cause you stimulated this beautiful thought inside me that I, I had to write it, it down so that I didn't lose it. But I was, I, a I was sign of you. a true creative, always creating. Right. And I wanted to throw <laughs> this to you, you know, that you were just showing your methodology on coping and, you know, something that I've, I've heard you sort of talk about is, uh, on your podcast understood. And most recently, you know, really what occurs when, you know, in my language would be coming home to the body. Right. And, and, Amen. and listening to that part of you, uh, in my work with my brother, we call it your big voice. Uh, listening to that part, to me, it's the intelligence of life. And, and you refer to it as leading from your heart. And, you know, mm-hmm. coming down out of the head, you know, obviously, you know, allowing the head to exist. You know, we can't cut it out, right? We're just talking about it. We can't cut that part out. You know, at my lowest, I, I dreamed of cutting my brain out. I really did. It was the closest I came to suicide was the idea that I could carve mm. out the parts that were wrong with me. And... Yet instead in this, in this other way of being, we can invite the head home, but we can live from the heart. And you were talking about living from the heart, but that doesn't mean that we don't get, you don't get fraught or, or suddenly uh, inundated with a sense of uncertainty. And, you know, you've talked before a lot about what it feels like to live in ambiguity and to embrace, take the risk of, of, um, you know, not knowing and being patient instead of you know, getting things done. Can you talk to me about what that feels like? What does it feel like to live from your heart, come out of the head? Uncomfortable. (laughs) Uh, I would say probably two words, uncomfortable, three words, real and true. Um, 
uh, on a very practical level, coming home to the body means being real with what mm. is, good, bad, and in between, of which the truth will set you free. Mm. That No one said, though, that the right thing is pain-free. Right. And I always use this analogy that, like, if you've got a dislocated shoulder, it's going to fucking hurt. Yeah. <laughs> um, the last thing you're going to want to do is do what is needed for the sh shoulder to be healthy, which is put that thing back yeah. in place. Right? So, I, you know, for a much longer discussion, the brain is hardwired to avoid yeah. pain over everything yes. else. Right? Way more than seek pleasure. It's designed to keep us safe. So it doesn't care if we're happy. <laughs> what we'll do is we'll, we'll get an emotional injury or, or whatever and healing, the brain knows that healing that thing is going to fucking yeah. hurt. So I'm just going to get super creative at adapting for the rest of my life. The, you know, and the broken sh and the dislocated shoulder analogy, fuck putting that thing back in. I'm just going to grab the Cocoa Pops with my T-Rex <laughs> arm and I'm going to play tennis with my forearm and that's life yeah. now. <laughs> um, but I think what living from the heart is, is this acknowledgement and appreciation that life is more than just struggling through. Life is about healing and serving and being and being means our totality and what i do know is if we live from the heart and have the courage to go toward the parts that mm. hurt and are and are dark we we actually ironically paradoxically not according to buddhists because opposites live together end up letting them go mm. So we don't go toward the pain to get stuck in it or roll round in it or, you know, self-sabotage. We go toward the pain so that inevitably we can pull its root out and let it go. Mm. Beautiful. That's the difference between treading water from the head and getting out of the water through the heart. But part of that means I'm going to need to hold my breath underwater for a while and Absolutely. trust. And, you know... To join you in that one, you know, you come home to the heart, right? So to someone that might mean, uh, to someone who's been suffering with such panic and anxiety, right? Such doubt, you know, such, um, such survival, you know, so deeply rooted in just surviving, not being, you know, associated with themselves, you know, coming home to the body where the heart resides uh, is at least first and foremost painful, Right, that there's all of these feelings, there's all of these thoughts, feelings, sensations, and emotions that have been awaiting to be felt. You know, I call it feeling the unfeelable. Mm. You know, we don't have to know how to feel them, but there's these parts of us that are waiting to be felt when we come back home. And you know, you talked perfectly about it because it's really just avoidance. You know, we are also hardwired to avoid the very things that might hurt. Right. So when we go, hey, hang on, I'm gonna, you know, what I like to call, let me get comfortably uncomfortable and come home into my body and actually just let myself feel this grief. Just let myself feel this anxiety. Just let myself experience this sadness that's behind these rituals or this impulsive behavior or this depression. What might occur, right? And and to me, living from the heart is assuming the risk of feeling all that. Right to actually live home in your body and from your heart, um, we we must take the punches of those feelings waiting for us to feel right. Amen. You know, and I love how you said, you know, we don't immerse ourselves in the subject, we don't stay in grief. You know, nothing ever stays. Nothing is actually ever endless. Even though OCD or other anxiety or other diseases, mentally and emotionally, will tell us it will never end. And what I found, you know, my grandmother would say, you know. Um, this too shall pass. She always would say that to me. And I hated hearing that. Amen again. I hated hearing that at my worst OCD. The truth is it does, you know? Yeah, and so what, what's it been like, you know, you know, living from your heart, you know, acting and reacting and voicing and being here, you know, coming through that time at Microsoft, coming into this new time, you know, tell us about heart on, heart on my sleeve, the movement you began. And what's it just, what's it been like to see yourself go from this, what, 
you've referred to before as curse, which is triggering to me. It was a huge trigger of mine uh, way back when. Mm. So I'm going to say it. Um, you're moving from what might essentially be a curse when it's undigested or you haven't moved through it yet into gift. What's happened? Like Mitch Wallace here on planet Earth. What's that been like, man? I just I felt called to drop in during that because I've been talking a lot from I don't know where and that's the problem. I want to know where this is this part's coming nice. from. So um I really wanted to make meaning from pain. I kind of refused to believe that whatever design is at work would bad things could happen for no reason. I just couldn't accept that. Um, so I was determined to be Harris for one other person. And by the way, at this point I wasn't even better yet. I, I, when I broke completely, I had to quit my job at Microsoft, move back to Australia, move in with my parents, had no idea what was going to happen, but I had just seen Harris's story and I knew something would sprout. And so my goal, be Harris for one other person. So after I, you know, and I'll explain in the book the core coping yeah. tools that were implemented to do the work, you know, huge ones being connecting with my parents and my loved ones in a way that was truly me. So authentic connection, not just pretending this is who I am, feeling loved and showing them all parts and feeling yeah. loved, super medicine. Um, coherence, getting an understanding of the things that had happened in my life that had affected me and had built stories along the way that I wasn't even consciously aware of that were playing out in my day-to-day -day right. life, getting to know them more. Um, chemistry, looking at what I was eating, drinking and or not and seeing how that was affecting my biology yeah. and or the medication that was called to me that I had never taken um, to get my serotonin levels to a copable right. point. Um, lots and lots of things. But... Um, as that journey began, this, this need to be Harris. So, so I remember the day, um, I remember where I was when I thought to myself, what was it about th that story that helped? And for me, I was like, it was his willingness to be vulnerable at, at all expenses in the service of someone yeah. else that would release someone from their shame. And I was like, He's really wearing his heart on his sleeve. And in that moment, I went, that's it. That's what I'm doing with my life. I'm wearing my heart Amazing. on my sleeve. So I went down to my local beach a few days later, got my mate to get a camera, and I sat on a rock and I told my story. At the end of the video, I had no idea what I was like doing it for. And I'm like, am I complaining? And like, what is the goal? And then I thought, well, this is the this is the anti-inflammatory right so how do i scale the anti-inflammatory and then microsoft marketing brain kicked in and i thought well why don't i draw a heart on my arm and um ask people to share their story if it resonates so i did do that and i pressed go and literally i would wake up 12 hours later and my life would change forever I ended up on national news. The video reached over a million people in a week. And then within a month, a global movement started where people all around the world started drawing and tattooing hearts on their arms. Um, as you can see on yes. the video here, mine's enormous. Um, and uh, my heart, that is. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it just blew up. And um, it's... It's taken three and a half years to let the dust settle on that and it's been the best ride ever and there's a, been a million things that have happened. But essentially um, uh, over the last almost four years now, so that was May 30th, 2017, um, Heart on My Sleeve is now one of the leading mental health organizations in Australia and slowly expanding globally. Incredible. We are both a social movement and a social enterprise. Um, the social movement is uh, designed to reduce self-stigma, i.e. self-judgment, which is different to public stigma. Very few people address self-stigma um, by creating a culture of authenticity and realness back into society. Um, 
notably through campaigns like our storytelling initiatives where people come and share either on our podcast, through the mental health movement, we create storybooks for companies, blah, blah, blah. We, through our behavioral change campaigns, our biggest one is called The Pledge. So in Australia, we have a big thing called Are You OK Day? What Heart of My Sleeve is trying to be is the I'm Not OK movement. So getting people to put their own hand up when they're not okay and speak up and seek help. And we, we get someone to make that promise and then we take them on a journey of how to do that. Um, and we also have our apparel line and our tattoo movement. So, so all that fits under the social movement, reducing self-stigma, increasing authenticity. Then we have our social enterprise um, that works with we're the main mental health vendor for Microsoft. So full, full 180. <laughs> yeah, or 360 depending on how you look at it. Um uh, KPMG, American Express, RB, like big brands. And we, we, we run three core programs, training, accreditation, and uh, groups. It's all based around the idea of enhancing connection as a therapeutic intervention. So as a social movement, the anti-inflammatory reduces the shame. Social enterprise, the intervention. Um, of my coping tools, I would say connection is at the top. And that's why we've built a an enterprise around it. So we train leaders and staff and consumers how to support people through difficult times, almost like a coaching degree um, and or how to ask for help in the right way. So conversation, the training is called Real Conversations. Our accreditation is called Real Mates, which is where we upskill people to become embedded mental health champions for their organization or community. Takes months to become accredited then we support you for a lifetime and it's about scaling ears that are willing to be safe spaces Uh, and then we have groups that we call real circles which we run directly and through our peer support network of volunteers um so that's been super cool i've got like a general manager in got a team and it's kicking ass but it's taken a fucking lot of blood sweat and tears let me tell you but i've loved every minute of it um i'm also running my own a business as Mitch where I do speaking and consulting and a whole, like book writing and publishing, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm about to launch my um, third business, which is called Calm Water, which is um, it's basically Barocca uh, or Hydrolyte, but for anxiety. So it's sachets that you add to drinking water so that relieves stress and promotes So not calm. much on at all. <laughs> mate it is that's, that's, it that's is my uh, that's my dad's joke of all, the, of all the every time yeah. we're up to all these different things he goes i'm not much on <laughs> um you know, you're a powerhouse mitch and I love, I love that i love that um you know talk about you know i mean this podcast is about conversations in in how someone embraced their crazy right and you know you're a living testament you know and that's what's so um you know, I couldn't acknowledge you enough for what you've done, you know, how you've, Thank you, brother. Um, how you've just met, met the breakdown, um, somehow came through it and, and have allowed, you know, what that same part of you to, to grow and emerge and to actually, you know, bear fruit, um, from the other side of what you came through. And, and that is that process from wound to gift. And, and I, you know, I would, I, I definitely feel that each of us, every single person that I've ever met has that gift awaiting them through the other side of whatever they're going through. A hundred percent. And I was just about to say, I don't know how, how the template of your podcast and how you want to sign off, but maybe a question to ask is like, um, what you know what is embracing crazy to you or, or what would you say is the three steps to embracing crazy because i know great mine, well thank clear. you mitch wallace <laughs> what are your three steps to embracing crazy in your life step one <laughs> step one to embracing your crazy see yourself in someone else because crazy by definition is a variance to, to normality yeah. right but if you normalize your experience in someone else crazy exists in a vacuum yes. It cannot exist. So number one, see yourself in someone else that is going through a similar thing and therefore you will not feel the loneliness or the outliership of what it means to be in your head. Um, Step two, reorientate the relationship you have with yourself 
to there's something wrong with me and this is painful to there's there's gold in here that has become slightly too big. I don't need to chop down this rose bush. I just need to cut off the top petals because mm-hmm. most of this stuff, this core DNA is serving the shit out of me <laughs> and it's great, but these outer edges and thorns are doing the damage. So how do I prune back the excess and get left with the gold that sits underneath this pain or this crazy? So beautiful. Step three, take that gold and be in service to <laughs> yes, others. Baby. Make meaning from your pain and allow that suffering to be the source of fuel for helping other people. Oh. Straight up there, there, there you are your go. three steps there from my go. book. Masterful. Masterful marketer and incredible. You just gave me the three steps to close. I'm going to have to continue that in your honor. Um, you. you know, what an incredible example of what, um, you know, I really felt like today's conversation was about, which is, you know, what we share in common, which is what almost killed us made us stronger. You know, another way to say wound to gift and another way to embrace your crazy in those three steps that you just outlined. I mean, talk about purpose when we can come through something that almost took us out and turn it into the service that we have for others. I like to call it, you know, leave a little crack in the door that you found. Uh, and you won't, Amen. you just don't know who you'll be Harris for who are your, who are you Harris to next? And it might be one in your whole lifetime and it might be millions and who gives a shit really? Because you know what? And let's, let's look out, let's go look up Harris. Like let's make it a mission that we go look up, up for Harris, but you know, who can you be Harris to on the other side of that service? And you know, um, just to give context to the fact that I mentioned Satan earlier, uh, that we ate a picture. Oh, but, yeah. um, the quick version is, uh, in the midst of my OCD program, I ended up, um, seeking out things I was most afraid of. And I, I ended up at the house, the museum of death in LA. And I, the thing that scared me the most in the whole museum was this, this drawing of Satan, uh, drawn by a serial killer. Um, and I'm forgetting his name right now. I think he's still alive up in San Quentin. And I told Mitch this story when we first met, we were sitting in my studio in Ojai, and he went, that sounds really terrifying. And I told him, well, what I did to expose myself to this drawing is I printed it out and eventually with the right help in my exposure response prevention intensive, um, I ended up eating it, the piece of paper with it on it, because it was the scariest thing I could (laughs) come up with. And it was absolutely terrifying. He said, well, that terrifies me. So we both ended up printing it out, um, I can't remember if I chewed another piece or you just chewed it with me, but it was a very amazing moment where um, somehow the exercise continued that we, we did something scary together at that magnitude, you know, and. Uh, Dude, it was so epic. It's so epic because we share that. I think, um, you know, the, these, fuck putting a title on it just for now, whether it's OCD or just being human or whatever, it's, a mystical experience. There's so much we don't know about ourselves and the world and the way things work. And we just, we're a meaning making species. So we try and figure stuff out. So we all at times will question ourselves in every domain. I think, you know, part, both of us questioned, are we good people? And like, you know, a horned object was like the thing that was a symbol of what we thought lived within us that we wanted to avoid. And we made the choice to go toward that. And that's why it was so confronting is consuming the thing you're running away from might actually be once digested, the thing that enables to pass. That's exactly when to gift. And, you know, hopefully it won't be a picture of Satan for you. It might just be what you're afraid (laughs) of, what you've been running from, what you've been um, inhibited from and stepping in and embracing that. So Mitch, man, I'm honored by you, brother. Thank you for being with me today. Yeah, Love man. You, bro. This is Embracing Crazy. I'm Toral Corin, and see you next time. Oh.